Welcome to the LBCF podcast. Our vision is to learn to live and love like Jesus, where we live, work, and play. To find out more about our community, you can visit us at lbcf.org. We hope you are encouraged and challenged by this teaching from our community. My name is Danny Cortez. I'm uh, the community pastor. If you don't know, LBCF has a three of three co-pastors, uh, Mary Dorsett, Ryan Longnecker, and myself. And we're just so grateful uh, just to be part of this community. Um, I was at the men's breakfast yesterday, and John was asking me if I was speaking today, and I said, yeah. And he goes, he said something along the lines, it must be nice to not speak all the time. And I was like, yeah, it sure is. I used to be at a church where I was speaking almost every week. And so they only come up every like six weeks. It just feels like such a, a better rhythm for me. And so uh, along with that, I'm just so grateful uh, when I do that, have the opportunity. And especially, you know, this morning as we continue our series on living and loving like Jesus, um, you know, which is the, th- the sign on our, on our um, you know, marquee um, right off the freeway. You know, I think it's such a beautiful, a beautiful little motto. Um, it says so much, and I'm excited for the you know, greater part of the year. That's what we're going to be exploring. But uh, before we begin, uh, let me be, uh, open us in prayer. God, I thank you so much for this time to just consider who it is we follow. Um, the God is Christ's followers. We are called to, to learn to live and love like Jesus. God, I know in this uh, busy world, um, it's so often easy to forget what that means. And so I don't pretend to uh, have all the answers. But God, I pray that somehow, through just the things shared and the stories um, that people hear, that we'd be able to glean what it might mean in our lives. Um, That God, we would. um, God, just lean closer to you and be grounded the fact that, God, you are here. And so we invite your spirit to be present with us. Um, bless this time in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, for those that don't know, um, I, I know I said this a long time ago, but um, I went to Long Beach State, and at Long Beach State, I was actually a biology major. And my favorite class um, in uh, my major was genetics. And I remember back in like maybe 1986 taking a genetics class for the first time and discovering this project that was actually happening already called the Human Genome Project. And my professor was telling me that there was this, was this complex endeavor where multiple corporations worked in partnership worldwide to try to figure out and and map and sequence the whole human DNA. And whenever my professor talked about that, he always spoke about it with excitement, that this is like the future. This is like within reach. And like, you know, people are working around the clock to try to make this happen. And and so that's why whenever I'm like on the computer and I see an ad um, that says, hey, for $200, you can get your DNA sequenced, you know, I'm like, that's absolutely crazy. Because back in the day, like, you know, all these corporations and, and, you know, the businesses were trying to make it happen. And it took them years and years. And finally, in 2003, like, they accomplished the project of like at least sequencing 93% of the human genome. 
And now it's like complete, and, and, and now you can actually get your own DNA sequenced in a couple of days. And that's because of the astounding speed of, of the modern computer, that, that things are just moving faster and faster. And I'm not sure, like, you know, especially those of us who are like my age and before, when we had no computer access at all, just to see how much, you know, life has changed. And things are just accelerating at a rapid pace. And now, you know, AI, chat, GPT, and, and all of that is happening. And, you know, I'm like just really confused and perplexed that this is AI is a reality and it's affecting so many different, you know, aspects of life. You know, just kind of like toying around with it in December. You know, Ryan asked me to give the Christmas Eve service and I went, opened up chat GPT. And I said, create a sermon for me on Christmas that's related to giving presents. And within 15 seconds, it gave me a three-point outline of a sermon. And I was reading on it. And I was like, oh, my gosh, that actually sounds very Christian. <laughs> I was like, I was just thinking, man, I think a lot of, like, pastors, you know, will probably like pull the wool over the congregations and start using, you know, AI to create sermons. And just to let you know, I didn't use AI this morning. <laughs> and I didn't use it on Christmas Eve. <laughs> but but it's, just, it's just crazy for me that things, you know, that, that used to take months and years, you know, artistic projects, movies, you know, writing books, you can just create it on AI now and I honestly don't think we understand right now fully how much this is going to change the way we experience life and the world and reality. And so I'm, you know, kind of nervously looking at it and seeing how it's taking shape and also trying to figure out how do you leverage this in a good way. But also seeing that there's going to be a lot of ethical issues coming along the way that I think we're always going to be behind in. But things are moving so fast. We are a generation of people that is striving for things to move faster and faster. You know, when I'm on the airplane and I'm trying to download movies on Netflix, I get upset that a movie takes, you know, a minute to download. I'm like, I need to download another one. And it's just, you know, that's just the nature of things. And, and it's, it's just that the world has changed. And so society right now, as I've said, values speed. We've been conditioned to have things now. But unfortunately, the spiritual life and life in Jesus is so much not about speed. It's not about going faster, but it's about slowing down. And not just about slowing down, but really to pause completely. Because the psalm says in 46.10, Be still and know that I am God. Now, how is this even possible for our day and age? When as a culture, we're just conditioned to just move things along. 
We want the right, you know, book. We want the right um, thing to just solve all of our complex problems. And, and so as I think about this, you know, this is probably the hardest commandment for me to remember, to be still and to know that God is here. But as I look at the life of Jesus, you know, I, I look at the life of Jesus and I see that Jesus was a person that was very busy. Jesus had a lot of demands in life, and yet Jesus was able to live this unhurried, grounded life in God that I think shaped everything that he did. And so today I want to look at uh, two passages found in the Gospel of Mark. The first is in Mark chapter 1, verse 32. And this is at the very beginning of Jesus' ministry. He is, you know, he has just been baptized. He spends 40 days in solitude. Um, he calls his first disciples. And almost immediately in the Gospel of Mark, things are moving really fast. He's beginning to like perform healings and, and large crowds are beginning to gather around him. And so in verse 32, it says that evening after sunset, the people brought to Jesus all the sick and demon-possessed. The whole town gathered at the door and Jesus healed many who had various diseases. He also drove out many demons, but he would not let the demons speak because they knew who he was. And so we see in this little passage that, you know, Jesus is gaining popularity. He's, he's healing people, and, 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 and crowds are beginning to form. But then in verse 35, notice what happens. Very, very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went to a solitary place where he prayed. And I think what Mark does is he, he tries to set this up for, to us as if Jesus, you know, at the very beginning of this ministry, when, when crowds happened, this is just what Jesus did. He would get up in a solitary place and pray. And so Simon, in verse 36, you know, and his companions, they went looking for him. And when they found him, they explained, everyone is looking for you. But Jesus replies, let us go somewhere else to the nearby villages so I can preach there also. And so here you have a situation in the very beginning of Jesus' public ministry where the disciples are kind of like excited. They're like, Jesus, there's a lot of people with us. You know, they're looking for you. Come back. We'll, we'll bring you back to them. And, and Jesus is able to say, no, I'm not going back because I know my purpose. And so Jesus and his remarkable ability to like just understand who he is and what he has been called to by God is able to create boundaries. That, that there are times where people will, will like clamor after you and sometimes you just have to say no. And that's what Jesus did, you know, in the disciples' you know, eyes, this was success. But Jesus wasn't about popularity and success. He knew his mission and he just continues going from one thing after another. But again, it was grounded in like the solitude and prayer. And just like being connected with God. And just being fully aware of, of who he was. The beloved of God and why he came. And then the second story I want to share is found in Mark chapter 5. It's a story of Jairus' daughter who is the synagogue ruler. 
And so in verse 21, we find that Jesus crosses, you know, over by the boat on the other side of the lake. A large crowd again is gathered around him um, while he was by the lake. Then one of the synagogue rulers named Jairus came there, and seeing Jesus, he fell at his feet and pleaded earnestly with him. And Jairus says to Jesus, my little daughter is dying. Please come and put your hand on her so that she will be healed and live. So Jesus went with him, and a large crowd followed and pressed around him. And so we have in the story this introduction of this man named Jairus, who we are told is a synagogue leader. In other words, he's a respectable member of the community. He is highly regarded. People know who he is. We find in the Gospel of Luke in this parallel story that, that this is Jairus' only daughter. And, and the fact that now she's dying, he, he, Jairus is pleading with Jesus, will you come and, and, and heal my daughter because she might die? And so it says in verse 30, 24 that Jesus went with him and a large crowd followed and pressed around him. And, and again, you know, Mark keeps telling us that there's this crowd around Jesus and they're trying to navigate through the crowd. But then in verse 25, something happens. We find that a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. She had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all she had. Yet instead of getting better, she only grew worse. And when she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak because she thought, if I just touch his clothes, I will be healed. Immediately, her bleeding stopped and she fell felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering. Now imagine that. Here's this woman who isn't Jairus. Nobody knows her. She's trying to like remain hidden in the crowd. She discovers who Jesus is, and in her mind and in her desperation, she, she makes her way through the crowd, and if only she could just touch him, she would be healed. And, and lo and behold, she felt something in her body, and she was freed from her suffering. She stopped bleeding. And so verse 30, it says that once Jesus realized that power had gone out from him, he turned around in the crowd and asked, who touched my clothes? And, you, and then verse 31, the disciples answered, you see the people crowded against you, and yet you asked, who touched me? But Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. Then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at, his daughter's, fell at his feet, and trembling with fear, told him the whole truth. And Jesus said to her, Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. And so we have this beautiful story, right, of this woman all of a sudden experiencing healing. But then, you know, she thought she would just be able to, like, get healed and, and walk away, but then Jesus... All of a sudden, like, you know, picture Jesus walking along and everyone's just trying to, you know, make their way to Jairus' daughter and Jesus stops and everybody is looking around. Why did Jesus stop? And then Jesus says this thing, who touched my clothes? And the disciples are like, Jesus, everybody's touching your clothes. What do you mean who touched your clothes? And, and Jesus begins to look around. And it's not like Jesus here is acting out his divinity and saying, 
And, and like, you know, what I do with my, my kids when they were two years old, you know, playing hide-and-go-seek. And, you know, one of my kids is hiding behind, like, a curtain with, with the bulge, you know, and me pretending, who, where's Alyssa? Where's Alyssa? You know, um, Jesus isn't doing that. Jesus is legitimately not knowing, like, who touched my clothes? Because, because he felt something. He felt something. And so as he was looking around, you know, this woman knew that she couldn't get away with it. And so she confesses, and guess what she does? She tells Jesus the whole story. And what, what you know, Mark includes here that Luke doesn't is that um, Mark says, that she spent so many, so much money on doctors. And, and not only did she spend so much money on doctors, but she only grew worse. And, and I find that funny because Luke is a doctor and he conveniently, you know, takes out that part, you know, when he's explaining the story. But, but you know, this woman now who is unnamed is looking at Jesus, caught and yet cured, and she's like confused. She knows that she has to confess. She knows she can't get away with it, and she decides to tell him the story that she had been bleeding for 12 years. And as a woman bleeding for 12 years in that culture, she was considered unclean. She was untouchable. She had suffered. She kept going to doctors upon doctor and doctor. She was spending all the money she had. And not only that, she was bleeding more. She told her whole story is what Mark says. Now imagine if you were Jairus in a rush to try to save your daughter's life. Imagine if you were the disciples thinking, wow, here's a synagogue leader who is respected. If we can just get him on our side, you know, we're going to like have the successful like that, that this mission. So Jesus, hurry up with the story. What do you mean who touched your clothes? We've got somewhere to go. We, we've, we've got to, we, we've got to save Jairus' daughter. But Jesus, in, in, uh, in his unhurried presence, is able to say, hold on. Hold on. Someone touched me. Let's hear her story. If I were a disciple of Jesus, that would have drove me mad. I would have maybe said, she's healed Let's get on with it. But Jesus is able to see just the importance of this woman. But then, unfortunately, in verse 35, it says, while Jesus was still speaking, it says some men came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue ruler, and told Jairus, your daughter is dead. Why bother the teacher anymore? Now, to Jairus, that must have felt like this painful stab in his heart. He thought finally he found 
the person who could bring healing to his daughter, and now it was too late. He went from having this hope to now no hope. And, and so I can't even imagine at that moment what it was like to hear those words, your daughter is dead. That must have stunned him. The grief that like overwhelmed him would have just been too much. And I wonder if the disciples were thinking, Jesus, we could have made it in time. If only we hadn't stopped to hear this woman's testimony. Who knows, but I know that this crowd, the disciples, Jairus, were all in a rush. And yet Jesus somehow, somehow did this thing that was just like, oh, irritating. But then he says to Jairus, don't be afraid. Just believe. Have faith. He took her by the hand and said to her, Talitha kum, which means little girl, I say to you, get up. Immediately, the girl stood up, walked around, and then Mark says she was 12 years old. Now, if you're following through the story, you'll find that there's something interesting happened. The story is like two stories, right? It's the story of Jairus. It's a story of the woman bleeding for 12 years. And then we have the story of Jairus again. And and what is interesting about this is that this sandwiching of stories is actually something that happens in the Gospel of Mark repeatedly, nine times, where two stories are intertwined into one. And so you have the introduction of Jairus. You have this, this person, this woman, brought into the story, and then it's concluded with Jairus again. It's the sandwiching that that Mark uses as this literary device to try to um, teach us something, that somehow these two stories are connected and that they actually help bring meaning together. And so whenever you have this sandwiching kind of, you know, um, storytelling, Mark is telling us, pay attention, listen to the story again, Because something is happening that will help bring meaning and teaching and serve one another in its purpose. And if we look at the story, it's actually pretty clear. In both stories, the number 12 is repeated, right? We are told that the woman was what? Bleeding for 12 years. And then Mark tells us that Jairus' daughter was what? 12 years old. And not only that, we find, you know, in the beginning that it was Jairus' daughter that was sick and in danger of dying. And notice the way Jesus addresses the woman. Jesus addresses the woman and says to, to her, daughter, your faith has healed you. Now, what's interesting about this is that this is the only time that Jesus ever uses the word daughter to address someone. And yet he does it now. He he addresses her as daughter. And of course, we know that the person that Jairus was trying to get healed was his own daughter. And so there you go. We have like the number 12 and, and the word daughter that is repeated. 
But, but Jesus does something interesting in the story where the woman touches his clothes. And in the woman's mind, she's thinking, if I just touch his clothes, you know, as the custom of that day that somehow spiritual leaders, that whatever they wore had some like mystical spiritual value, that if you could just touch their, their clothes, that they would be healed somehow. But, but Jesus, upon hearing the story from the woman, kind of corrects her and says, no, woman, it wasn't, it, or daughter, it wasn't that you touched my clothes, but guess what? It was your faith that healed you. It was your faith in God that healed you. Faith is what matters here. And so what does Jesus do when Jairus' daughter, you know, when Jairus is told that his daughter has died? Jesus, after saying to the woman, your faith has healed you, now looks at Jairus and says, keep on believing. Have faith. And so the thing I think Mark is trying to do for us here in this literary sandwiching technique is point to the to, to the importance of just being grounded. That, that as you're going through the chaos of life, as you're looking at these two like trials, right? One was very intense. Someone was about to die. There were 12 years of joy that was about to be taken away. It was like intense. And the second one was prolonged. 12 years of misery, 12 years of loneliness, 12 years of heartbreak. And yet in both stories, Jesus is able to say, it is faith. It is your belief that brought healing to you. And Jairus, don't be afraid. Have faith. Jesus is like trying to teach them and us just the nature of what it means to be Christ followers. That the same way Jesus lived life was a life of faith in his humanness. He depended on, on, on faith in God and not his divine omnipotence and divine omnipresence or any of those things to accomplish all his tasks. It was just faith in God and just relying on the Father and the Spirit. It was that grounding that he experienced in solitude that was able, that he was able to, to live life. And everyone in the story, you know, focused on the ruler. Um, and somehow Jesus was, or able to have this, Ability to pay attention to this woman who wasn't known, who isn't even named in this passage. Everyone thought she was a distraction. Everyone thought she wasn't important. And somehow, because of who and how Jesus lived his life, this unhurried life of like, you know, everyone, society, the crowds telling you to go a certain direction. 
But because the state of Jesus' heart was always like centered on God, he was able to pay attention to people that had long been discarded by society. And he looked around and he looked at the woman and gave her a platform. He elevated her. And he remarked about her courage and the beauty of her faith. And I think that's the type of person I want to follow. That's the type of person I want to be, uh, Jesus, who was able to see the beauty in people that have long been neglected by society. And about a month ago, my wife and I were uh, returning back from a conference in Washington, D.C., and we decided, you know, a lot of times we go to a place and we try to make an extra trip you know, before we head home. And on the way home, I was looking on the map and I saw, oh, Toronto, you know, is headed west. And so I had always wanted to bring Abby to the Niagara Falls um, because I remember when I was in middle school, uh, we did this road trip across the U.S. and we visited our relatives in Michigan. And one day, the relative said, we're going to take you to the Niagara Falls. And, you know, as a middle schooler who had no internet access or any real knowledge of geography, I had no idea where we were going. I just knew that, you know, we were going to go to, uh, you know, a place to spend the day. And so I remember getting out of the car. Uh, again, I was just a middle school kid and um, just hearing, like, this, this noise. It was like this like distant thunder, and it was louder and louder as, I, as we were headed in the direction you know, of the falls. And, and as, I, I, as I was able to finally get this glimpse of the Niagara Falls, I remember for the first time in my life being stunned. I had no expectation, no idea what, to, what I was going to see. And then all of a sudden, I see this like massive wall of water just flowing endlessly and just feeling all the mist just like go all over me. And I'm like, just my, my jaws drop. And I'm, I'm, I'm just like sitting there just, or standing there just thinking, how is this even possible? And, and I'll never forget that moment, you know, it was something that I had, you know, I never went to again until last month. And I had talked about, you know, taking Abby to the Niagara Falls, and finally I was just able to take her, and there it was again, you know, I was just like, oh, this is absolutely beautiful. I could just stay here. I, I wish I could live, you know, driving distance where I could just like... See how powerful this thing is. And so I remember reading a book by Dallas Willard where he talks about like the similar experience. And I was like, I totally get you. I totally understand what you just wrote about because it brought me back, you know, to that experience. And this is what he wrote in one of his books. Um, Dallas Willard, you know, while he was in South Africa, he visited a beach near Port Elizabeth. And this is his words. He said, I was totally unprepared for the experience. I had seen beaches, or so I thought. But when we came over the rise where the sea and land opened up to us, I stood in stunned silence and then slowly walked towards the waves. 
Words cannot capture the view that confronted me. I saw space and light and texture and color and power that seemed hardly of this earth. Gradually, there crept into my mind the realization that God sees this all the time. He sees it, experiences it. And billions of other scenes like and unlike it in this and billions of other worlds, great tidal waves of joy must constantly wash through his being. This is what it might have been meant for him to look at creation and declare that it was very good. This is God's existence, that God is always able to see billions and billions upon billions of examples of like beauty and greatness, that this is just what God sees, that every like sunset you know, that awakens my soul, God sees it. Everything you know, in nature that displays God's glory, God sees it and is able to still even now say this is good. And so before God is available, this like beautiful galaxy. But, but I think what I find in the story that we just read in Mark chapter 5 is that Jesus is able to, to do what I do with the Niagara Falls or, or this beautiful beach and then ascribe that power and that glory and perfection and beauty to a person that has been forgotten. That to Jesus, when he sees someone in need, he's able to say, wow, you are valuable. I stop. I pay attention to you because you mean, you mean more to me than all the divine luxuries in the heavens that I gave up to be here. When Jesus talks about the pearl of great price and in the Gospel of Matthew that some merchant found this pearl of great price, sold everything he had in order to acquire that pearl, Jesus was really talking about himself. That I gave the heavens, I gave everything, so that I could be here with you, I give my life for you, is what Jesus does. And, and so this person that everyone thought was in interruption and distraction Jesus says, no, we got we to gotta pay attention because this is why I came. And I know the practices of the spiritual disciplines is something that is very important and I, I like pour myself into those practices. I believe in the practice of prayer. I believe in the practice of fasting. I believe in the practice of solitude and and all the other spiritual disciplines that are there. But if the spiritual disciplines is only there to help perfect your inner life so that you can have some kind of like personal holiness, that isn't the goal of us, the spiritual disciplines. The unhurried life, a life of solitude, isn't so that we can bask in some remote place and enjoy the comforts of isolation. 
The reason why we, we go into a place of unhurriedness is so that we can see or we can connect with God so that we can be grounded in the life of God and begin to become aware of how God sees the world and how God sees people. It is there so that we can grow in our capacity to love, to live and to love like Jesus. And so when we speak of the unhurried life, yes, there are times we have to say no and, and say, you know what, I need to spend my time with God right now. But we're not meant to stay there. We are meant to go out. And in Jesus' example, he went to the crowds. And somehow Jesus was able to show to Jairus, Jairus, this woman is not an interruption. She is actually here for your salvation. Because Jairus, in the same way, this woman had faith. You lack it now. And you need to see what you have to do. You have to believe. Now, I remember a few years ago, um, I was um, visiting a man in the nursing home. Um, I think he was about 86 years old, and he told me that he, was, um, he had been there for about five years. And, you know, he had only been given, like, less than six months to live. And so I went over there to, to, to meet him. Um, and, you know, I was just, you know, trying to get to know him and, he told me about his life, and he lived a hard life. I mean, he was just like, you know, just, you know, I won't go into the details, but there was just so much stuff he went through. And yet there was this, like, at ease presence about him. And I was like, and so I asked him a follow-up question. Um, I, I said, you know what, um, as someone your age, you know, 86 years old, as you say, and here I am, about a 50-year-old man, what advice would you give to someone like me? And he paused, and he thought about it a little, and he said, remember this. When you get to be my age, you're going to wish you were 50 years old again. And that's what I discovered, he said. And so he said when he got brought first into the nursing home, he was recollecting all the years of misery. And yet, now that he's in the nursing home, he wishes he could go back in that time. And so he said when I got to the nursing home, it made me realize that I had been like allowing all these things to rob me of my ability to exist and experience the moment. And so now for the past five years, I've been accepting or, or living the fact that now is, is a gift from God. I accept this present moment as a gift from God. And guess what it has helped me to do? It's helped me to lean in to all the other patients here. And I saw that, and I was like, wow. That is a beautiful thing. 
And so I know that, you know, someone who oftentimes visits uh, people in convalescent homes, um, you know, I think I've said this before, you know, I think a lot of times people think I'm there to help people, but really, God uses those moments to heal me and to allow me to discover. You know, people even, you know, in the nursing home that society sometimes forgets, and yet there, there's just so much... There's so much interaction and joy that I experience that it's powerful, it's beautiful. And he taught me that, you know what, now that I'm 56, I always remember that, that time with that man. I'm always like, every birthday or every time I think about my age, that I'm, gonna, I'm going to appreciate this time in my life no matter how hard it is. Because one day in my future self, I'm going to look back and wish that I was this age again. And guess what? That wish is a reality now. 30 years from now, you're going to wish you had the body you have now. Be grateful. And live in this moment. Ground yourself in the life of God. We will continually be pushed towards busyness, towards activity. But sometimes we will miss the interruptions that we think are annoyances. And yet those people are the very things God has intended to put our way. We have this opportunity, right, with City Heart. You know, it's like we could easily, like, miss City Heart and, and the people there. But I, I was thinking about this morning. It's kind of like the woman tugging. Do you see me? Do you acknowledge me? Or do we become so busy that we have such a crowded heart that we can't see the glory the beauty that is right in front of us. And so as we move into communion, um, as I think about the death and, and love of Christ that this communion table represents, this is Jesus um, interrupting his divine existence to come into this earth to be with us. How beautiful is that? And so let's move into this time of participation in this, this table to remind, be reminded of God's great love, that he loves you and me. And he loves the people who are often seen as interruptions in our life. May we be grounded in the life and the love of God. Father, we thank you. We thank you for the stories of Jesus. And we pray that you would help us to live such an unhurried life that we are able to pay attention to what moves you.
And so bless this time. Help us during the course of this day and this week even to, to wrestle, to meditate, to pray. That you would teach us to slow down and even to stop completely. And to know that you are God. Amen.